Welcome back to the Crone of Temple, Texas. Since even before Christianity was seen as an official religion, early followers debated the fundamentals. What is required to be considered a Christian? On this episode, Barbara gives us some of her own thoughts on the subject. We cover belief, baptism, confession, and even behavior. What qualifies as being a Christian? Barbara's answers may or may not surprise you. As we usually do, Barbara will read an excerpt from her Connections article and will spend a few minutes discussing some of the points she makes. Here's Barbara Wenland. I hear it said occasionally that not all people who are in the church are Christians. That may well be true, but what does identify a person as a Christian if it's not merely being in the church? For about the first 40 years of my life, I assumed that being a Christian mainly meant being in the church. Of course, it also meant being nice and sweet and polite, I thought, and obeying all laws and authorities and following all rules. It essentially meant doing what most people I knew did. In more recent years, however, my understanding has changed. I now see that at times being a Christian can actually require breaking rules and customs and disobeying institutional authorities. It can mean not doing what friends and fellow church members are doing. It might even require not being in the institutional church. At various times, I've talked to other people and asked them what they saw as the requirements for being a Christian, and they've come up with a wide variety of opinions, some of which contradicted each other. As we think about these different opinions, I hope you will look at what you think being a Christian requires. Some people claim that in order to be a Christian, one must believe in the resurrection of Jesus' physical body and must believe that Jesus is literally the Son of God, among other things. To support this view, people usually cite certain Bible verses or interpretations and see them literally as facts. Some Christians see literal belief in the virgin birth, the theory of substitutionary atonement, and the Trinity as essential for being a Christian. Yet these ways of describing the meaning of Jesus arose long after he died. Besides, scholars tell us that in the culture in which such doctrines arose, they were not understood in the way they are understood by most Christians today. The Christians who see certain beliefs as requirements for being Christians usually seem to feel also that publicly stating them in particular words is required. I've even known Christians who claim that physical ability to say the words, Jesus is Lord, is a test of whether one is a Christian. Someone influenced by demons, these Christians say, would be physically unable to speak that particular phrase. I find that a gross misinterpretation of Scripture. For many Christians, as important as believing certain statements about Jesus, 
is having a one-time conversion experience, an experience of being born again. It is experiencing God's presence in a dramatic, life-changing way. Yet other Christians see conversion as gradual spiritual growth. Some Christians see the main requirement for being a Christian as baptism, and baptism is typically accomplished by making an explicit public statement of belief in Jesus and loyalty to him. Sometimes the commitment is followed by baptism later when the necessary physical facilities are available. When infants are baptized, parents make this commitment on their behalf. The baptized person is expected to confirm the commitment when she or he is older. Most Christians who see baptism as what makes someone a Christian also see church participation as essential. It usually includes observing the sacrament of the Eucharist. For some, it also includes other religious rites that their churches officially consider sacraments as means of experiencing God's presence. In a fascinating book by Karen Armstrong, The Great Transformation, she says that the main insights of the earliest major world religions are very similar. All arose during what philosophers call the Axial Age, from about 900 to 200 BCE. For the originators of these religions, Armstrong finds, what mattered was not what you believed, but how you behaved. Many Christians also consider that the main thing that matters. Some say it's the only thing. The axial sages put morality at the heart of the spiritual life, says Karen Armstrong, and to them, morality meant compassion. To them, religion meant respect for all beings. Behaving kindly and generously was the route to the divine and to saving the world. Many Christians see this kind of morality at the heart of being a Christian. Many others strongly disagree, insisting that Christianity depends on other features, especially the death and resurrection of Jesus and his unique role in saving people from sin. Yet there seems to be plenty of evidence in the Bible that compassion is what counts. Sometimes when people call themselves Christians, it seems they're merely putting themselves in one cultural category instead of another. In a poll or census, when they're asked what their religious preference is, they check Christian. Yet they may consider themselves Christian only because they grew up in a church, were baptized as babies, and have never joined any other religion. Maybe they celebrate Christmas and even go to a church on Easter. Maybe they more or less see the Ten Commandments and the Golden Rule as having value yet they don't seem to deliberately try to follow anything else of what most Christians consider essential. Are they Christians? 
we may come to the conclusion that we simply can't say for sure whether someone is a Christian. We have to take their word for whether they are or aren't. We have to accept that whoever says he or she is a Christian is in fact a Christian and leave the real decision to God. Barbara, you explained what you thought being a Christian used to mean. But as you grew, both in age and maturity, you've come to change many of those beliefs. You actually say that breaking rules and customs might be required of some Christians. Yes. Well, I used to think that just obeying all authorities, people and groups that I considered authorities, was what was important to being a Christian and that being nice and sweet and so on was really what being a Christian meant. But I do think now that it sometimes requires not doing what the authorities of life tell you is essential. Uh, I think that to become totally... Uh, attached to all traditions, for example, all customs, can really be, in fact, acting unchristian. And I think that we saw in the example of Jesus, when we read the New Testament, we see some ways that he actually broke rules and and failed to observe religious customs of his time, like we read about his breaking one of the rules about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. And it was very strictly a rule in the religion of his time, but he obviously didn't think it was important, and so he broke it. He did the opposite of what it required. And I think that's an example of the way we have to act sometimes, too. And we see, in fact, uh, people sometimes breaking laws, even, um, in order to do what they believe is what Jesus would have them do. And sometimes it's hard to know whether they're doing right or not. Um, It's easy to think that simply obeying every law is essential to being a good citizen and so on, but In fact, there may be some times when even breaking a law could be what was required to follow Jesus. Let's talk about belief for a moment. When someone claims that a person must believe in Jesus' death and bodily resurrection, what are they actually claiming? Well, I think they're claiming to believe that those things actually physically happened 
And in my opinion, his resurrection, for example, I don't, I doubt that that physically, bodily happened. But I don't know. Maybe it did. And, but the people that claim to believe that seem sure that to say that Jesus was resurrected means that he physically somehow got out of his tomb and um, even maybe rose up into the sky. I don't know. But to me, that is not what the Bible accounts really mean. Do you have thoughts on what they actually do mean? No. (laughs) Is that a good answer? I don't know. I don't know how to explain that. Well, I mean, not that we need to keep this, but the way that I would interpret what you're saying is the resurrection is what takes place in all of us. You know, the Spirit of God is born inside all of us, and we have to be willing to die to our former self so that the new self can can resurrect or can be born again. Yes, and it means that somehow in the time of Jesus, people uh, who had known him in his life continued to be aware of his presence in his spirit after his physical death. And that was a way of saying we all can somehow be aware of his his presence in our lives. And that's a way of saying we have seen him again. Yes, maybe so. I wonder why some some people get caught up on the fact that that we must interpret the Bible literally. Like, why is that such a such a sticking point for people as opposed to embracing the metaphorical or embracing the spiritual truth without the historical significance? I think it's simply because most things that we read and hear about events, we do interpret literally. Like if we read the newspaper and hear that something happened, um, we don't take that as a metaphorical statement. We take it as meaning an event physically happened. And so when we read the Bible, we expect that to be, we expect to need to read it in that same way. Yeah, it's, I mean, we we can we can go down one level of understanding or go up one level of understanding and look at things as, for example, parables and say, well, those were clearly stories. Jesus was telling stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can look at some books of the Bible, such as um, Jonah and the whale, 
and there's going to be heavy debate whether or not that was a physical, literal story or that was yes. a metaphor for something else. And so, you know, you, you start to get into other books like the Book of Acts, for example, and it seems that everybody believes that everything literally happened the way that it was written because it was a historical account of something. And I guess what I'm saying is there's there's likely things within the Bible that have truth buried in the story, and it's written as a, a literal account, but it's probably that it's just a means of telling a spiritual truth. Yes. Do you have anything to say about being born again? Well, I think the whole idea of being born again, which is stated in the Bible, is a way of saying that we change in some way, that we make, we make fresh starts in life. Um, I think it obviously doesn't mean that we're physically reborn in some way, but it means that we're changed. And that's just a way of saying that. In your many conversations with people throughout the years, what do many people believe happens during baptism? I'm not sure. I, I feel that many, maybe most, churchgoers feel that there is something, I don't know, not magical, but something that happens that is beyond description in the ceremony of baptism. And they feel, therefore, that baptism is essential for becoming a Christian. But to me... I think official church doctrines typically say something about baptism as being created by God. That is, that we are instructed by God somehow to be baptized if we want to follow Jesus. And I see baptism really as simply the making of a public or open statement of one's intention or willingness to follow Jesus. And I think it's valuable probably just in the sense that other public statements are worthwhile simply because stating one's intention publicly gives it more strength, maybe, um, 
makes it more reliable than just having a vague intention within oneself. If I come out and say to other people that I'm going to do a certain thing, then that creates for me a sort of an obligation to carry through on that because some people heard me say that I was going to do it. And I kind of think that's really the principle behind baptism. But I know that a lot of other church members and the official doctrines of the church attribute more more and different meaning to it than that. Well, what do you make of Jesus' Jesus's command where he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father? I think that's just a statement that reflected what was um, typical in his day. I don't think it's like a, a literal piece of instruction to all followers. I don't I just don't see that as a as an instruction to do a particular specific action just as with communion when he says do this in remembrance of me I don't think that he is specifically saying take a sip of wine and have a bite of bread in remembrance of me. I think it's a it's a much larger and non-concrete kind of a statement. And I see that one about baptism much the same. It seems the f- the fundamental question really is will somebody ultimately end up in a place called heaven if they're baptized or not? Yes, and I think that, well, first, that there is not a physical place named heaven that's up in the sky or somewhere. But I think being baptized or not doesn't affect what's going to happen to you when you die. I know that a lot of people feel that if someone dies without having been baptized, that they really are not going to heaven. But I do not believe that that's true. It's interesting that so many people, so many Christians, place an emphasis on belief. Uh, so much so that behavior can sometimes become secondary. I don't think uh, many would say that behavior isn't important. Rather, they would claim that behavior is an appropriate response to belief. So, in your opinion, where where is the balance between belief and behavior? Well, I think simply stating what one believes is not worth much if one's behavior doesn't reflect what one claims to believe. 
I think that behavior is what's really important, and it's what really, it's what reveals what one believes. Behavior, not just statements, reveals what a person believes. What about people who practice compassion and promote social justice but aren't doing it because Jesus commanded it? Can we legitimately call them Christians? More important, if they act compassionately, does it matter whether they're Christian or not? I think we cannot necessarily call them Christians if they are not doing those things as a as an effort to follow what Jesus did but i don't think it matters i think if they are doing the kinds of things that Jesus did and taught then that's what counts no matter what their intention or reason for doing it is. Don't you think if we look honestly at the full implications of these questions, others uh, likely even more crucial arise, uh, such as God, does God even care? Uh, Does it matter to God whether someone makes an explicit or exclusive commitment to Jesus rather than simply treating all people with justice and compassion in the way that Jesus modeled and taught? I do not think it matters to God what people's reason is for doing the right thing. I don't think it matters to God why you are doing the right thing. What matters is you're doing it. So ultimately, I think this, I'm digging down a little bit more, I think this reveals another question of who is God from your perspective? My understanding of what God means is something like the order in the universe or the principles by which everything functions. I don't see God as a being and certainly not a human-like being. And so I don't attribute to God some of the qualities that I hear other people attributing to God about what God wants and what God likes and doesn't like and so on. Let's end on this idea that we simply can't say for sure what someone, you know, someone believes. Um, We kind of have to leave that up to them or their relationship with God. And yes. ultimately, maybe doesn't even matter. I think, finally, as far as what are the requirements for being a Christian, I don't think anyone knows the final answer to that, that we have to kind of assume that if someone says they're a Christian, they are a Christian. And beyond that, I think... We have to simply leave it up to God. Barbara, thank you for your perspective. For those who have listened to this podcast for some time, you know Barbara's purpose is just to get people to examine what they believe, 
to test your doctrines and practices up against one's actual convictions. Are your beliefs your own, or are they merely prescribed to you as commonly accepted norms? Thank you for listening to the Crone of Temple, Texas. Please share this episode on social media. Visit connectionsonline.org for access to all of Barbara's articles and to get in touch with her. Barbara loves to hear from you. Really, she desires the interaction, questions, and feedback. She can be reached through her website, connectionsonline.org. Thank you for listening to the Crone of Temple, Texas.